Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of Hello there, good listeners. This is Slava. I'm just jumping in here for a second before the episode starts to let you know that during the edit, we noticed a mistake that I made. I referred to Elokar a few times as Adeline. So a careful reader, a careful listener, somebody who's read the book might notice that right away. And for the rest of you, that's just an FYI. A few times... When we're referring to Elicar, I say Adeline. That's all I wanted to tell you guys. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining us this week. And now, back to the episode. Drum roll, please. Lava. Happy Way of Kings Wednesday. Happy Way of Kings Wednesday to you. Hmm. We're breaking that fourth wall again where we're telling people that we're not recording live on Tuesdays where we quit our jobs in the morning just to do this yeah. podcast. They believed that, though. They do. They should continue to believe that. Yes. Just like that Lethe believes something, right? What are we talking about? What do they believe? What am I talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? The people who believe that the desolations are over, but I feel like they're about to start. Mm-hmm. So, that's uh, you want to dive right in. I you don't want to tell me how your week's going. You don't want to give me the old rabble rabble. The rabble rabble. Well, my week's it's all right, man. You know it is what it is. I worked all week. It's only halfway through it. Your mic sounds better. What'd you do? It does sound better. You learned. <laughs> you you surpassed your ignorance. <laughs> I got a different wire and uh-huh. connected my interface straight into my computer instead of the hub we were doing some back and forth troubleshooting with slava's mic setup and i told him that gain functions partly through electrical current and then we found out that his setup was plugged in through a non-powered hub and now we're trying it this way and so moving forward mic should be loud enough i will sound a little better that's right we can't worry. We can't. We <laughs> I messed up my own stupid joke. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So the week a week the week was a week. I don't know, man. It's just it's just work. I feel like um, this week is just coasting through. It's Everybody's right. got to work. Got to do something. Yeah. Unless you have an eighty-five IQ. Is not paying the bills. That's true. It's, it's an not eighty-five IQ. Yeah. So psychological tests have and actually I. Well, maybe you wouldn't be familiar with this. I was going to say you should be familiar with this, but basically they did studies and if you have below an 85 IQ, you can't actually do any jobs. Uh, and this comes from the United States government, i.e. the army, where they won't take you if you have below an 85 IQ because they literally don't have a job for you because you're too dumb to be able to do a job. Wow. 
Sorry, okay. not sorry, well, but like that's. I'm coasting at a 93. And <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. We took the big five personality test and your intellect, whatever that's based on, which was not a number, but your intellect was higher than mine. And I'm still a little bitter about that. It's all right. It's all <laughs> you know more facts. I'm okay than with I do. it. I'm okay. Yeah, with I'm it. sure you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, yeah. dark eyes, just, just <laughs> know your place. <laughs> uh, I like to be called Bright Lord Slava from now on. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, this alarm's gonna wake up every morning. Your wife's gonna be like, "What is that nonsense title? Turn that off." Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, give us a rundown. What'd you What'd you learn this week? About Dalinar and Adolin and Kaladin. Oh goodness! Well, oh, well we're not first, doing rundowns, right? We're well, we can no, doing... we can do rundowns. I I think it works because we already read it. We're going to discuss it anyway. So I think having the rundown on the front end makes sense. Uh, we're just kind of figuring this out. So I think the rundown does make sense for this section we're going through. That said, we are looking at chapters eighteen through twenty-seven. This section. This is true. So I read this section fairly quickly because of our recording schedule in recent days. But what stood out for me, maybe you can fill in my rundown. What stood out to me was it slowed down a little bit, but there was these little things that are going on. They're, I think, setting us up for something bigger in the coming chapters. So in the beginning here of 18, we have Aladdin on a date, on a very, very bad date. And he is trying to figure out, we're talking to some leather men, men who work with leather. What's the word for it? <laughs> yeah, no, leather Leather workers. Leather workers, leather men, uh, yeah. a leatherman multi-tool. Never mind. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out who, if anybody cut Elokar's saddle because in, in the last uh, chapter or two before he fell off his horse during the hunt of the chasm fiend and because he's a paranoid little boy he thinks somebody's trying to kill him well although he's not convincing anybody i mean least least if, of all me well yeah for sure but if your dad was killed by assassination uh, you, you know at least some justification there Sure. No, I think he has the right to be worried, especially being the son, not only of somebody who's been assassinated, but as Delinar explains to Aladdin later on, that kingdoms are usually at the highest risk with the son of a beloved leader. Because everybody judges the son by the father, and rarely does anybody live up to those expectations. So Adeline is right to be cautious, but I think, and it's said in the book by other characters, and I tend to agree with them, that he is paranoid. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So you told me a little earlier that you had taken some notes on your Kindle, and you wanted to give this a different swing this time. So take us away. Yeah, well, yeah we're, well just for as a context for the audience... Instead of going chapter by chapter, we are going to kind of look at the journeys, for lack of a better term, of the characters in the set of chapters that we're looking at. Yep. yep. So the way I went about 
attempting to stay, stay within that framework is I highlighted some interesting things, at least things that are interesting to me. I highlighted them and took some notes on those things instead of, you know, taking the chapter, kind of writing down what happened to it in my own words and then going, okay, where's my question? What is my assumption? So I have highlights and I have portions of the of the chapters and then I have those questions and some notes written underneath there. So love it. All right. So the first thing that I thought was interesting or that kind of get I got a kick out of was Adeline on his date or lack thereof. Love a good date, not date. Yeah. So they're um, with what's her face? Janala. Janala. Yep. Staring right at it. So I thought their interaction, I thought their back and forth on this date, not date was kind of funny. Okay. And it, it might be just me. So th- this is uh, this is something that just stood out to Slava. She's she's clearly bored on this date, not date. Here, well, here's the thing. I'll, I'll just read a little bit of it that stood out. Adeline, a feminine voice, said from behind him, you said we we're going on a walk. That's what we're doing. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. Caught him. Yep. And her retort was, I had imagined that a walk would involve more walking. <laughs> so it's silly. I, I get it. And it might not be what everybody in the audience will be like, oh, wow, that's great. Thanks, Lava. That was a great point, you know, on page uh, 295. But for me, those kind of things, they stand out. So Adeline, he's, and we're going to find out that, find this out as we read on, as we, you and I talk on, he's, he's also worried about his father, Delinar. Because his father is having visions during night storms. And these oh, visions yeah. are, are telling him to unite the kingdoms. They're... Unite them. Yes. They are visions that involve him convulsing or having fits during these visions. Pro- epilepsy mods? Come on. A little bit. And he's also not fighting as much. And so the other... The other folks in this camp are looking to him and going like well he was a fighter right what was his uh, name blackthorn blackthorn there it is so blackthorn's not the same blackthorn he was a little bit ago and because he's babysitting adeline he's not fighting he has these visions some people think him mad or weak and so adeline is kind of stuck here right so he's stuck, stuck in between loyalty to his father, but sort of kind of understanding or at least sympathizing with why people are talking the way they're talking. He can't keep down a girl or a, a courtship to save his life, at least in this, in this part of the story. And as he has all this weight on him, he's still trying to court somebody. So the fact that he took this girl on the walk actually took her on a expedition to do a mission for the king that kind of not, not only is it funny because i got a little chuckle out of their dialogue but it kind of shows like the predicament that he's in to right me, right I, i'm looking at this and going like man this guy's on a date and he has the weight of his father's whatever's going on with him because he doesn't understand it completely and he doesn't believe the king's saddle was sabotaged and now he's walking around leatherworks and then he goes to what you know the equivalent of a church is and he talks to some religious leaders and he can't figure out what is going on 
So as much as he wants to date, I think dating's in the last thing in his mind. So this is almost perfunctory. Th- he might date. be son of a high prince, but he's still trying to get. He's still trying to peg on the side. He's a young man. He's, he's yeah, and he's yes, yes he's, he is. He's got appetites, desires, and wants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Adolin, he he's not good with women, but Renarin's worse. We never even see Renarin with a gal. No. Like, but in this culture, I think Renarin is just set up for failure because he had some. He has some sort of blood disease. Whatever that, that means. Uh, whatever that means prevents him from <laughs> fighting, and. He what, is shy and awkward. What do you think, and, though, What with Wit in in the last episode where Wit's making fun of him and Dalinar's like, Wit? And then Wit is like, Dalinar, he's not as fragile as you think he is. Well, what I think about that is based on what I read further in this section because as I was <laughs> of reading... Of course, of course. As I was I was waiting. That, to, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. As I was reading that, without reading these chapters, I was like, all right, you know, Wit's doing his job. And I never thought of Wit as just some D-bag that just, you know, busts people's chops. He has a place in the king's court, and if we're going to take at face value this culture for what it is, for what Brandon Sanderson sets it up for, that's Wit's job. He makes fun of people. That's it. So, a two-part answer to that question, and part two, I don't have anything concrete to say or anything I can say with confidence. But part one, based on what I read in this section, is Wit is sort of on Delner's side. Or if he's not on his side directly, he at least believes Delner is somebody that Wit can trust or Wit should, I don't want to say defend, but Wit kind of gives him some intel that is beneficial to Delinar's politicking. Polit- politicking. Politicking? Politicking. There we go, yeah. yeah. Politicking. Politicking. Because I speak English, and yeah. I have a high IQ. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 Well, well, well. So. Okay. All right. And I think, but if we're just going to uh, wax, you know, philosophical here, I think. Wax and wane for those Cosmere yeah. folks. You know what that is? There you go. No. Okay. Wax and I know what the words mean, but right. I don't know what it what what I'm what referencing. You're so what you're um, referencing, yeah. We'll get to this eventually, but you there are other books in the Cosmere, right? And so there's there's a trilogy of trilogies, and it's called Mistborn, and Mistborn's probably going to be the first movie that's made, but there's Mistborn one, two, and three, and then that's called Mistborn Era one, and then there's Mistborn four, five, six, and seven which is known as Mistborn Era 2. And the characters for Mistborn Era 1 is more of like a Victorian style on a place called Scadrial. And then Mistborn Era 2 is still on Scadrial, but it's like a thousand years in the future from the first set. Okay. And I remember the you main me about characters this. from Era 2 are Wax and Wayne. Okay. So So anyway, that's I'm I'm here for the Cosmere folks. Yeah, yeah. If we are to wax and wane philosophical, I think <laughs> what Wit is saying there, um, without getting into what I read or didn't read, is most people, me. most people like um, Renarin. 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 Yep. Yeah, Renarin. Renarin. You got it. 
most people like Renarin, just because they have a disability, if you will, or they're shy and quiet, doesn't mean that there are some weaklings. So I think Wit, who's able to observe all three from his vantage point, he might know something that Delinar, who is heavy laden with a lot of stuff, might not see in his son. Because he see his son as a boy. Right. Right? Right. It's even referenced later in the in these chapters where he's like, Man, I still see him as a little kid and he's almost twenty. So True. True. So I wanna just I wanna take a quick side quest here because I don't think I've told you this before and I don't know if we've talked about this with the audience at all, so I just want to do a quick side quest. The you know what a chiastic structure is, Slava? Yes. Okay. Can you just give us a quick description of what a chiastic structure is? So it's usually in a form of a poem, and a chiastic structure is you have three points, and you've got A, B, C. And so in the first part of the poem, you say A, B, C. And then in the second part of the poem, you say C, B, A. So you make a first point, a second point, you make a third point, you reinforce your third point, you go back to the second point, and you go back to reinforce the first point. First point, excuse me. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Okay, so... The five books in the first arc of the Stormlight Archive, I'm going to read them off and then I'm going to explain something. So the book, book one is Way of Kings. Book two is Words of Radiance. Book three is Oathbringer, the name of Dalinar's sword. Book four is Rhythm of War. Book five is Knights of Wind and Truth. That is a pending title because book five is not done yet, but... Sanderson has been using a chiastic structure in the titles of the book because book one is W-O-K, book two is W-O-R, book three is O, book four is R-O-W, and book five is K-O-W-T at the moment. So he's got a chiastic structure going on. The relevance of that, if you know about chiastic structures, is that the main point is the main point. The center point is the main point, right? Now, that's interesting. That's interesting for a lot of reasons. Not a whole lot that we can get into here because we're reading book one still and we're only in like the first section or second section of book one, right? But it is relevant because the Parshendi actually have a world-building element called, I want to say it's a Ketik. I want to, yeah, I want to say it's a Ketik where it's, it's a chiastic structure, but a ketic is what he uses, what he calls it in the book. The abbreviations of the first five books also form a palindrome of five parts being similar in structure to a ketic. W-O-K, blah, blah, blah. Um, so anyway, that is a little side quest here for you because there's so much more going on in the Cosmere as a whole and uh, the Way of Kings than we know about right now do you have any notes on the epigraphs that we saw in this section no only only because when i looked at them i was like i'm sure there's something to this yeah but i promised you dear reader uh-huh. and listener uh-huh. and fellow podcaster <laughs> uh-huh. that i uh-huh. wouldn't read ahead more than what would give me just a general knowledge of the world to help me with the context of what i'm reading and I felt that if I started digging into this epigraphs, that might ruin it for me. Well, yep. not for me, because I don't care about spoilers. Uh-huh. But it might ruin it for this project. I am a man of my word. Good guy. So Good guy. I, I didn't 
I didn't read ahead or didn't explore them. And as I read them, nothing of... Act with honor nothing, and honor will aid you. Exactly. Nothing stood out to me as like, oh, this is worth noting for our episode. And that might be wrong of me, but as I read it, no, I was no, like, no. all right, no, that's it's, an epigraph. It's not, it's, not, it's not wrong of you. It's insider information. Like the first time you read this through, you go, okay, that's information. I'm sure it's relevant somehow. Authors don't mindlessly put things in. There's, there's a relevance here. I just don't know what it is, right? So I'm going to draw your attention to two of them from chapters 18 and 19, and I'm going to tie them together for reasons that in the future okay. I think you'll figure out. Uh, maybe not this book, but like the future in general. So Ati was once a kind and generous man, and you saw what became of him. Ray's, on the other hand, was among one of the most loathsome, crafty, and dangerous individuals I have ever met. He holds the most frightening and terrible of all the shards. Ponder on that for a time, you old reptile, and tell me if your insistence on non-intervention holds firm, because I assure you, Ray's will not be similarly inhibited. So that's part of the same epigraph, only spread across two chapters. Perhaps. Most likely. Hmm. Uh, Sounds like it. Yeah. It reads it reads like it when you put them together, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Doesn't mean it's the case, but mm-hmm. so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna point at something here for you so that you can ponder. He mm-hmm. holds the most frightening and terrible of all the shards. So, my knowledge of the Cosmere, mm-hmm. seventeen shards, correct? Yes. Now here's a question, and this is going to take us on a little bit of a side quest, but it's for Slava to understand context. So there are 17 shards, but yet in this world, in Roshan, on this planet, it seems that, and I might be answering my own question, there's more than one shard blade and more than one shard plate. Does that mean that each planet on which a shard, one of the 17, landed on, it broke into enough pieces for the Alethi to have numerous blades and plates from that one shard or am i off in cuckoo banana town uh well two things first off my number is wrong it's actually 16 original shards 15 being currently known so that's the first thing second thing you're you're not right but you're definitely not wrong all right so fine side quest over to Fair answer enough. your question, yes, no, 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 because there's nothing else to say then, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not being it's it's snide. Well, that. the problem is like some of these revelations happen in books two, three, and four, and Fair. so it's just like, yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's th- that's right. this is the fun and the nuance of like part of the reason I think that these books have like really picked up with Sanderson is strictly because this is one massive multi-book puzzle, right. Well, and again, broken freaking record. I've said this, I think now at 29 times. I'm going to start. We should the start pace, counting. The pace. I know people might complain that it takes him two chapters to get to a thing or to explain something. But to me, and I know this is all subjective and personal, but to me, the pace of this writing wants you, wants me, makes me want to read into book three four well two three four and onward 
because stuff like this, if done well, and I think Sanderson does it well, it keeps you interested. Correct. It's not like, great, I know about a thing that I won't find out. Right, because he did an encyclopedia dump. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't do encyclopedia dumps. I mean, even with the epigraphs that we just looked at, he gives you a slice of of a something. You know, it could be a letter from one person to another. Exactly. So, to answer your question, what do I think the shard is? Is that kind of what you were sort of a question in between the lines? I'm I'm this terrible shard. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the man behind the curtain over here. I'm drawing your attention to the fact that whatever this is talking about is addressing that Ati and Rays are somehow relevant to shards. Okay. So Ati and Rays are deities then in the in this Maybe. They're at least connected to deity because who right. else but at least at least. Who else but but the top echelons of society or deity have this. Right. Right. Well and so there the two other Although assumptions. Parshendi have some have a shard bearer. That's true. And Parshendi are considered, you know, beasts almost by these <laughs> well literally beasts. They're called beasts. So they're considered like, you know, uncouth beasts by the Lethi. Right. But yeah, they have a shard bearer. There's two other things about this epigraph and then I'll stop. Person A is writing to person B. That neither of them well, uh, person A is addressing two other characters, Ati and Rays. So we can mm-hmm. make the assumption that that's not the person writing, and it's also not the person receiving it, right? Good assumption, right? Yeah. Like you're not talking about yourself in the yeah. third person. Anyway, I won't belabor the point. It's a fun quest that we will continue down. Keep, Sounds keep, good. Bring us forward. Where, where, where do Adolin and Dalinar? Adolin and Dalinar. Uh, I'm catching the tism over here. Adolin, wait. Ask the question again so I can get my bearings. Bring us forward. Recite. Bring us bring us forward. All right. So after this date, Adeline goes to talk to a priest and to share the with this priest. Yeah. Yeah. To share with this priest his worries about about his dad dad's visions and fits that he has during these high storms. You ever had a vision, Slava? No. Uh, but I've had okay. Side quest. <laughs> uh, I have to uh, give give me a second. Give me, I have to set it up the right way. So bear with me. I got to Google a date, and I will tell you. I will tell you a story. Is it about strawberries? Let me. You pull up. Yeah. Okay. You pull up your thing. I'm going to tell the, the audience a little story about a time when you and I were sitting on a couch, and uh, Slava's just going on about this long joke about strawberries. And at the end of it, the 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 plot twist of this joke is that there's no there's no end. It's just a nonsensical story that doesn't mean anything. And I was like waiting for a punchline, and I was like, "You're ridiculous." Well, I in the vein, or in the light, or in the tradition, or all three, or Norm Macdonald, I told the most pointless, stupid, nonsensical joke which ended with strawberries were a big part of it, but it ended with the moral of the story is look both ways before crossing a street or the street, a street, any street. So on the night of August 30th in 1997, I had one of the most vivid dreams 
that I've ever had in my life. Ooh. And I don't know if I've ever heard it this was, before. No, you haven't. I think my wife and one other person have heard this. And now the internet. And now the internet forever. Spill that tea. So on August, on August 30th, 1997, I am a month away from my 17th birthday. I go to bed and I had one of the most vivid dreams in my life. Now, I've always had, since a kid, very lucid, very vivid dreams. I'm often in control of my dreams. I often know that I'm dreaming and I can like play around the world that I'm in, in my dream. And they're always colorful and crazy and like out there. So anyway, on this particular night, I'm dreaming and I'm dreaming I'm sitting in the back of a car that's speeding down a highway. And for some reason, I know that it's a black car, a black sedan. And there is a woman next to me with short blonde hair. And we're speeding. There's no conversation. It's kind of like it almost seems in the dream that the windows are all open <laughs> and the wind's blowing in my hair and we're speeding down the highway. A lights and the, the city lights, the, the lights of the other cars, it's night, are flying by me. Exactly. Starry night. It almost looks like the starry night um, by Van Gogh. So these things are happening in the dream. And in in this car, in this dream, I'm feeling a bit of angst, right? And I don't know why, but this woman next to me is laughing and talking. Probably she's not you're really 17. talking to me. Uh, yeah, but th- it's not a sex dream. It's just a like I'm in the dream. There's nothing sexy about it. It's just me and this woman, and she's having a good time, but I feel angst. And then there is. I can't I can't really say it's a crash of the car but something happens where the woman's face f- turns from having a smile to the most horrible grimace possible and her face contorts and everything goes black and that's it I wake up go about my business and get ready and I go outside to go hang out and what I see on the front door like the stoop of the front door is the local newspaper and the half page it's folded over so the hat the top of the half the half page and it says princess diana dead and it shows her black car all mangled now what i'm not saying is that i dreamt or it was a premonition or a vision of her death i'm not claiming that at all but that as was as close to anything of a vision that I, I think I ever had. I fully admit before you and the internet, coincidence. Because I claim eh. no psychic powers. Well, here's but, the thing, though. But that was, that was a, that was, how do I say this? Let me back up. I claim no psychic powers. Uh-huh. Right? But that was as close to a vision as I've ever had in my life. And I actually, as a kid, I kind of brushed it off. I, I thought, I was like, huh, well, that's weird and freaky and creepy. I'm going to go about my day. But as I got older, I looked back on it and I was like, eh, coincidence or not, that was kind of kind of more than just creepy. Interesting. That's my story about visions. There was no high storms, 
that night. <laughs> I am not sure? a I am not a bright lord. Mm. I mean, you'd fit and it. You, your eyes aren't dark. They're bright green. Yeah, so you would be a bright. Yeah. You'd be a bright lord. Yeah, and I've never met Princess Diana in my life. Thought she was a pretty cool person. You think you think the royal family killed her? No, I don't think the royal family killed her. Um, I I have a hard time buying conspiracy theories that place all power in some strange cabal. I think it's all horse crap. What I think, and I'm going to quote George Carlin, and I'm going to paraphrase him, actually. I'm not going to quote him. There's no cabal. There's no meetings. If there's anything that the governments of the world do or the elite of the world do is they all know the game. They know the end goal and they work towards it in their own pace, in their own time and in their own way. And if you want to tell me that, okay, I believe it. But if you're going to tell me that the Royal family in cahoots with somebody else, Oh no! I consider it like an interfamily mafia hit. Oh, okay. That maybe. I mean, I wouldn't put it past anybody, but she I don't was doing think so. stuff they weren't they weren't on board with, right? Like yeah. Oh yeah. I, no, that's did fair. you see that's the World fair. Economic Forum? Like to just like some of the nonsense. That, like uh, no, no. I I get that these people say and do weird things, and so I think I misunderstood you. Ever see, you, so you ever see Eyes Wide Shut? Anyway. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. In the world of Eyes Wide Shut, I would say none of those people have, like, midnight meetings. How are we going to subvert the culture? How are we going to, you know, find new flesh for our parties? I think everybody knows what they're going to do, and everybody just does what they're supposed to. All right, all right, all right. So, anyway, no, I don't think the family killed her. I think a combination of drinking, an inept driver paparazzi being assholes and possibly possibly a foul actor or a bad actor using those things to maybe cause the catastrophe yes was it an outright hit that was like planned and executed in some mafia-esque precision no i don't believe that and just not enough evidence for me fair enough fair enough all right side quest over bring us back to dalinar Having yeah, visions in the high storm. That's where right. we're at. So let's fast forward a little bit. Well, let's not. Let's just end the, this uh, this point real quickly and then fast forward. So Ad- Adolin, 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 I'm going to say it right. I'm going to get these names right by the end of this quest. Adolin gets back from the leather workers, goes to the priest, continues to annoy his girlfriend, and They're tells him what serious. he they're not that serious, but still, he annoys the girl he's trying the to make his girlfriend. the flavor of the week. Fair enough. But he still annoys the flavor of the week. He talks to Teshev, one of the priests, and Teshev is also concerned because Delanor is having uh, these fits, he's having these visions, and supposedly the stuff that he's saying or the things that, the positions that he's taking, what he comes away for, with from these visions is almost blasphemous, um, at least for to some people. So Adeline is concerned, talks to Teshev, and Teshev kind of, who's doing some fence-sitting, goes, yeah, that's 
that's bad. It's definitely bad, but you shouldn't say that's bad because he's your father and he's a bright lord. Bright lord. So just keep a lookout. Like you, you should be concerned, but I wouldn't be too concerned. So that's the next thing that happens, right? And fast forward past that, you have Delinar politicking. He he has these visions. It, in the visions, presumably the Almighty is telling him to unite the kingdoms because all these kingdoms are fighting the Prashendi, 10 of them, but they're not united in anything except their fight against the Prashendi. So Delinar is trying to protect his nephew, trying to protect his sons. He's trying to protect his position in some way because people are talking about him and his fits and him not fighting and him being a coward and him being a madman. So he's politicking. He's trying to politic with the high princess. He's trying to politic with his nephew. He wins some. He loses some. And in the midst of this, he has another vision, which is very interesting. Right. Well, so we haven't even talked about Kaladin yet, which we, we've got some chapters with him, too. So, Yeah, we're just focusing on the royal family now, but that's Delavar. Yeah, so Dalinar, chapter Delinar, 19, Delinar. has this vision where he's sent to, like, a different world, a strange place, one of his visions, right? And he hears the same voice, you know, in previous visions that he suspects to be the Almighty, continuing to tell him to unite him. But then, in his real day-to-day life, he's getting yelled at by his son, for good measure, I think. Like For good measure, yeah, no, it was it was deserved, because... Delnar, for all his honor and duty-bound efforts, he kind of lets some things fall to the side. He kind of acts like a little bit of like an ass at times, mm-hmm. you know. And I know that's maybe not the right word. He's not acting like an ass, but he's not acting. If he's he got his own bound, priorities. He's got his own priorities, and if he is going to say he is duty-bound, he's letting certain duties overshadow completely other duties. Right, right. So, and previously we, we saw Dalinar try to have Elokar, his nephew, the king, uh, appoint him as High Prince of War, right? Mm-hmm. Elokar says, no, not going to do that. They're going to hang me if I do that. And then what do we see happen? Well, he doesn't say no exactly, right? He says, no, they're going to hang me, but you know what? I'll think about it. We'll figure it out. I think you're on the right track. Not exactly the king's words, but he gives Delnar hope, and then, and then he doesn't fulfill his word even to think about it. He just gives Sadius a, a position of high prince of information. Right. So then Sadius ends up being given the task to investigate what happened to the king's. What's the? Can I make him a saddle? Saddle, saddle, saddle. Thank you. Can I make an assumption right here? You that is this is the whole journey before destination. All right, I'm gonna go on on a limb and say that nobody but good old nephew cut that saddle. Wait, what's your? So you're? Oh, you're saying that the king cut his own My saddle? My assumption, his paranoia, his paranoia, uh-huh. his immaturity mm-hmm. and inability to lead well which his mother even says somehow, you know, in not so many words. Woof. 
you know you're, you you know you've you've made it when your mom's like he's a terrible king thanks yeah. mom so because nobody believes him and because he's an impulsive child that that's revealed to me at least when he like rushes off from the oh my god yeah from the group during the chasm hunt anyway and because Delnar doesn't believe him he's paranoid as hell he needs Delnar on his side and when Delnar doesn't take the it seriously the 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 cut strap he uses Sadius who he knows is at oh, I'm going to very political language is at odds with Delnar <laughs> he sets he tries to set them against each other maybe even unwittingly or like the enemy of my enemy is my friend he knows, I'm not sure what he's doing he knows there. they he knows. literally fought in front of each other when right, Sadius right. insulted Renarin and yeah. Dalinar was like, surely, Sadius, you did not just insult another Bright Lord in front of right, the right. king, which then would mean that I'd challenge you to a duel. Surely I must have misheard you. And Sadius was like, "Right, okay, yeah, I'll back down. Yeah. So I don't think the king is smart enough to to see the intricacies in his own chess moves, right? Or he doesn't think him through to their full, to the com- to their full conclusion to their end, but I think he's paranoid enough, and knows enough about how to maybe move some chess pieces on this in, in this political arena, where he goes, okay, I'm going to cut my thing. That's going to get Delinar to b- believe me, but Delinar doesn't respond in the manner the king desires, which proves what kind of child he is, because it's going to take a while to investigate this. Mm-hmm. So I'm wor- the how I got to this point is working backwards. I'm telling it in an actual time, but I worked backwards yeah, to yeah. get to this point. So he cuts the strap. It doesn't work to his satisfaction. <laughs> and he goes, all right, I got this guy Sadius. Sadius, Sadius. Goodness, my na- names. Please don't kill me, Cosmerians. I'm going to butcher all these names for the rest of the English is in his first language. Don't add him in the comments. Also, English is in my first language. How would you say Um, some of these names in Russian? Whatever. We'll cover that later. Yeah. Um, So he cuts the strap because he's a petulant child. He doesn't get... Well, not petulant child. He cuts the strap because he's a... No, that's fair. No, that's super He's a petulant child for other reasons. He cuts the strap because he is paranoid, and this is him acting out, wanting... Not attention, but want, well, attention to this particular slice of his paranoia. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't get what he wants. He wants to be becomes validated. Petulant, assassin. Right, he whatever. wants to be validated. This is where he becomes a petulant child. He goes, "I know Sadius. Sadius, my goodness, Sadius and Delinar don't get along." Right. I'm going to stick it to Sadius. I mean, I'm going to stick it to Delinar, and Sadius. I know because of his animosity towards Delinar. He will find out the truth, even if it means railroading Delinar. That's that working that backwards. I'm like, he probably cut the stupid strap. Okay, all right. So that's your assumption. So noted. That's my assumption. Marked. Got it. There we go. All right. So moving forward, Adolin and Dalinar are in the map room. Adolin yells at Dalinar in public mm-hmm. about his visions. This is yep. a political, like high society. That is not something you do. Yeah. Not okay. Not no. okay. And then later, Dalinar goes out to try to capture a gem heart, and he's killing these Parshendi. And I'm very broad stroking here with these these chapters, right? But given the given the audience some time, some context, 
And then he's killing these Parshendi and he's living into the thrill. And he gets this sudden stabbing of conscience for killing Parshendi, the Blackthorn himself, the mass murdering killer of who knows how many wars. Like, you don't earn a nickname, a war nickname like the Blackthorn for no reason. So, clearly he's earned it somehow. Now he's having second thoughts? What's that about? Yeah, well, I think that's about the visions, right? Because, well, it's more than about the visions. The visions are part of it. He also is beginning to see, because he's not fighting, he's taking care of his um, his nephew, he's directly involved in day-to-day politics in the war camp, which is now, you know, capital 2.0, because uh, everything's been moved to the war camps, even some of the warriors' uh, families. He sees that this is a strain in the kingdom, the weakness of the king, he sees that, and he begins to think, have we not avenged my brother's death? Is that the only reason we're fighting? The sense that you get as the reader is, so there's these chasms, Prashendi attack, Alethi respond, people die on both sides, Prashendi usually run away, at least the way, you know, up to chapter 27, the way it seems, um, whether it's a tactical retreat or they're just losing. In any case, they retreat, and I think Delner's looking at all this from his vantage point going, this is absurd. And then he's having these visions, and the visions are telling him to unite them because the only thing uniting them now is the War of the Prashendi, which, as the pol- uh, the political figure that he f- is in the, p- in the place he finds himself in, he thinks it's silly. So there's this message to unite them because they're only united about something that he is beginning to see as maybe fruitless. It is fruitless. They're literally playing cat and mouse for no reason. They they went out there with a reason originally, and Dalinar is totally correct on this. Like, we're not doing anything. The whole reason we came mm. out here, psh, we're just jerking the gherkin at this point, like not doing a whole lot because yep. we they they lost sight of it, and they're just like petty squabbles. They took their high society and brought it to the shattered plains of all places, just to kill a bunch of Prashendi. Just for yeah, for no reason. And at this point, I imagine. They've killed enough of them to have some sort of vengeance lust fulfilled. At least for some of them, it should be. How many Parshendi do you need to kill before the vengeance pact is fulfilled? Because at this point, I'm in agreement with uh, Delinar that why? What what was the point at killing the Parshendi now? At this point in history, why are we killing all, trying to kill all of them? Yeah, but anyway, I think we've spent enough time in the halls of uh, the Alethi uh, leaders. Well, and and I'll make one more point, and then you can move us forward. Is we you said it was a little slower this section, right? And that's kind of why I chopped it up like this because we get some power plays in the sec in the episode we just released, and. You know, Kaladin ends that one with taking Rock's place, and he goes, I'm bridge leader. It's my privilege to run at the front, right? And there's some action there. Well, now we have to rebuild some more – or not rebuild, but we have to we have to go and focus on some of the other points of view with Dalinar and Adolin and over the Shattered Plains. And, I mean, we know something's going to happen with Shallan coming up in the next episode because 
we didn't see her this episode. It's like, she's clearly a main point of view. So, like, what is going on in the world that is Roshar, and how is that relevant? At least Dalinar, Adolin, and Kaladin are all on the same side of the Earth fighting on the Shattered Plains, right? Like, we at least have some semblance. But the thing is, Kaladin's trapped under the thumb of Sadius in his bridge cruise, which is not the place you want to be. Let me tell you. No, not at all. Because Sadius, Sadius, Sadius is, um, well, a pragmatist at, at at best, right? So for him, these bridge crews at are best. just a means to the a means to an end. And I'm being, I know, I'm being a kind and using that word because he sees no value in these people's lives whatsoever. Yeah, I yeah. Because even if they're the wretches of society, there's. Yeah, like, the way he treats them is even below that. Right, right? You know, yeah. It's nonsense. Yeah, so now that we left the map room, the halls of the Lethe well, the first, royalty. The first chapter we get with Kaladin, he's, we're getting a flashback again, right? Well, yeah, that's right. That's, I was going to say, we, we, flash forward, we flash backward to seven years ago, and as, as the flashback opens, he is... He is trying to save a girl who had fallen, and he is not able to save her because he's probably just a child and not skilled enough as a surgeon to save a person who's lost as much blood as this little girl did, right? So, Cal does not save her, and he is... Mortified. Crestfallen. Crestfallen, yeah. Good word. Crestfallen. This reveals a little bit of his character that we see in him as an adult. Because here he's 13. And what I found interesting was just as he's prone to melancholy, he is also duty-bound. He knows it's his obligation to save this girl. Yeah, because he's son of a surgeon. Yeah. Right, right. And he does not. He ends up failing that. What Lear and his father says is interesting here. This is what, something I highlighted. You have to learn when to care, son, Liren said softly, and when to let go. You'll see. I had similar po- problems when I was younger. You'll grow calluses. And this is a good thing, Cal thought, another tear trickling down his cheek. You have to learn when to care and when to let go. In the distance, Harl, which is the girl's father, continued to wail. We have this glimpse into Kaladin's character, even as a child, which he carries with him into adulthood. He binds himself to people. That's, I think, why he would save the kids on the battlefield, or he would look for for kids who were maybe left alone, maybe it looked like they didn't have anybody, maybe uh, they were can't-get-rights, um, and he took, <laughs> uh, yeah, he took, uh, if not pity, he took, um, sympathy. And I think those two words are very different. He took sympathy on them and he wanted to help them. And it obviously comes from watching his father and maybe in some sense, this inc- incident, because it's not in here just for, for grins. Right. Sanderson wasn't bored writing chapter 20. He's he's had an easy life, Kaladin. 
you know, Bridge Four is the first uh, rough thing he's ever had to go through. <laughs> yeah. Was, yep. Poor, poor Cal. Never had a problem until Bridge Four. It's basically Paris Hilton over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A much more muscular and manlier Paris Hilton. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, Paris Hilton can carry herself with a spear as, as good as Cal, but you probably not. Probably not. Uh, yeah. Coach Purse. No though. hate, Paris. We love you. Well, we don't hate you, at least. Yeah, that's Maybe probably Jonathan true. hates you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some no name on the internet. I'm one of your biggest haters. No. Uh, yeah. So we start with Kalan on a flashback, and then we have a chapter called Why Men Lie. Kaladin is post bridge run. Because the last thing we had hit from him is he's with Rock and he kicks him out of the the thing and he goes, you know, I'm bridge leader. It's my privilege to run at the front. And they come back. He brings back the sick and he's debating on whether or not to even get up from his bed. And then he finally kind of tunes into the present and he's like, oh, the other bridgemen are watching to see if I'd get up or not. And continue being the bridge litter, continue to train, continue to find purpose in the midst of suffering. Which, side quest, did you ever read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? About ten years ago, yes. Was that your first read-through? First and only. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think I've read it three times now. I, I try to make it a habit to read it every year, I don't always get to it. For those not in the know, Viktor Frankl was a Jew in World War II. He was put into the Holocaust camps, and he survived four of them, and he survived, he escaped death about a dozen times. Uh, correct me if my number's wrong there, but he, there were literally moments, and he and he gets out, right? So he, he wrote this book, and he gets out of the Holocaust camps, and he realizes that in the midst of suffering, you can still find purpose and joy. Even though it's tough, he he says in uh, one of the last one of the later chapters, he says, "I met some good people who were guards on the walls, so Nazi guards, and I met some bad people who were Nazi guards. I met some good people who were prisoners with me, and I met some bad people who were prisoners with me. And it's like this guy literally endured suffering. His family died. His friends died." He should have died. He didn't. And he got out and he left the camp with this level of deep soul wisdom, I guess I'd call it, about suffering and how you get to put purpose to your suffering. Suffering's inevitable, but you get to put purpose to it regardless of how bad it is. And Kaladin is doing the same thing. He's taken this really terrible situation now, it's it's not exactly as bad as the Holocaust, but it's pretty bad, right? Like, they're literally running to their deaths. So it, Yeah, well, your suffering doesn't have to be as bad as the Holocaust or the American, you know, slave trade. Yeah, yeah, or that's fair. Or pick any, you know, atrocity in the last, let's say, thousand years, right? Let's go back that far. Your suffering doesn't have to be that bad for it to be suffering. If you are... Good point. A nine-year-old kid, right? Let's just say a nine-year-old kid in the suburbs, you have want for nothing. You're fed, you're protected, but your best buddy 
your dog, Sparky, gets hit by a car. And then your bike gets your stolen. Your world. Or whatever. Just forget the Both. bike gets stolen. Just the just the, the dog. Let's leave it with the dog. For All this right. Point, let's fine. leave it with I'm the dog. I'm just trying to add some suffering on here. So the dog is dead. To Maybe to anybody else would be like, yeah, that's kind of sad. Um, the kid's dog died, but I don't know how to feed my kid. The guy across town is thinking, yeah, that's, I'm so sorry your dog died. I don't know what to feed my child, though. Both are suffering. And maybe in the grand scheme of things, you can assign value, you know, points to those uh, to those suffering. But each one is still suffering. So when we meet Kaladin here, he is in a world of hurt. No matter, you know, whether he had a kid or not, you know, irrespective of him having puppies. Like, this guy is in a world of hurt. He's in a bad place. He's betrayed. He's a slave. And he almost lost the will to live himself. Yep. But he he finds it, and he wants to encourage or strengthen, or both, uh, the men around him. Well, he finds it in taking up responsibility. and And this is a direct reflection of being human when you're in the midst of suffering when you're in the midst of despair and depression and i've had depression before if you find a way to latch on to some sort of responsibility it can be doing your dishes daily it it doesn't have to be big but if you choose responsibility you pick up that burden yourself it is a small sense of purpose and having a sense of purpose is a counteractment to despair, depression, and being a broken human soul. Right. I think we touched upon this in our previous episode where we talked about making your bed. Just start with making your bed. (laughs) And how, for me, making my bed every morning helps, helps set the day. Yeah. Strike that first thing off the list. Yeah, and I'm not in, you know, any horrible place in my life. I mean, do I wish my life was different? Did I ever imagine that at my age I'd be doing what I'm doing and living the life that I'm living? No. Is it some of it disappointing? Yes. But I make decent money. I eat good food. I have a very good partner for a wife. I have enough free time to do a podcast. And to just ramble on on the internet. He eats really well. I just, we're going to go, I'm going to interrupt you again real quick. He sends me photos. You should go follow his, uh, his Instagram, his chef Instagram. What is it? Chef's, Chef Slava's? Uh, it's at Chef Slava's. So C-H-E-Z Slava's at Chef Slava's on Instagram. The, the man for fun, Slava for fun bought a French cookbook and is memorizing it and like learning to be a a classically trained French chef because that's what he does for fun. So he sends me these photos of like, oh, this is what I'm making for dinner. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm face deep in a half of uh, a sloppy whopper that's like oozing disgusting mayo. And I'm like, wow, that looks really good. He's like, what are you eating? And I, and I, I go, this... <laughs> and it's just like Burger King <laughs> nonsense or, or Taco <laughs> Bell. And he's like, wow, that's nice. 
Well, you're making you're a little interruption is making my point. In the midst of tr- the, the, even the troubles I have now, as somebody who is in a good place and financially secure, and all those things I just mentioned, I have enough time to and money to spend on Escafe. So, if anybody wants to train themselves at a, do it your, do it yourself at home, French uh, culinary training, buy a book called Escafe. He's the French guy who started. <laughs> what we know as French cuisine. So back to my point, I have enough money and time, not only to do that, but to pursue a podcast in the hopes that it will turn into something, right? Not just like, ah, I'm just blab- blathering out on the, on the internet. If it doesn't, I won't be too sad because other things will come up. But right now, I still have enough time and money to sit here with you, we both do, and... Talk to the people on the internet. Talk to the people. Like, on the not internet. everybody has this. Like, there's people working three jobs just to been there pay rent. Been there. Oh yeah. Been there. Me, me got, too. Gotten kicked out of places because I couldn't pay a hundred dollars in rent. A hundred dollars. That's it. All inclusive. Hundred bucks. Couldn't couldn't afford it. I have been poor and destitute before, and it is not a great place to be. Not at all. Not at all. Which brings us back to Kaladin. Yay, Catalan. Bridge four. Yay, Catalan yeah. converters. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so so he gets up because he needs to, and later on he doesn't run away. And you know me, I like to jump back and forth. So he gets up this morning, and a couple of mornings from now, he doesn't run away, although it's tempting for him to run away, because he has an obligation. He has a duty to these men now, and he doesn't want to disappoint them, and he doesn't want to abandon them you skipped their... ahead a little bit you skipped ahead a little bit while you were sneezing i saw you on the screen <laughs> uh, i admitted i muted it I admitted, so, the, so the people wouldn't hear i admitted that i'm skipping ahead to make a point that this day starts with him duty bound to these men and, and then at the end of the week which is picked up in a couple of chapters when he's thinking about running away he goes no i am still duty bound to these men and then back to the past he just after he chooses to get up, he does we'll call it the impossible. He unites two members of Bridge Four. Better than Dalinar, I might say, because Kaladin has actually united at least a couple people. Dalinar has not. But it and could he's be gotten outplayed. He's gotten outplayed. Yeah, it could be the, the the status in life. You know, the bridge people, bridgemen don't really have anything going on, so they're just like, Ah, sure, why guys so follow you or whatever yeah yeah so he he encourages teft and rock we get names of two bridgemen right teft and rock to commit to helping the sick and then also he gets gaz to give him rock collecting stone gathering duty and tells rock and teft to come with him and then they actually gather knobweed oil or sorry knobweed reeds to uh, make the antiseptic that the apothecary wouldn't sell to him because it's too expensive. Yeah, that th- that's how he saves that man's life, prevents rot spren. Which, again, the, the spren are, they fascinate me. Wh- where do these spren come from? Because there's rot spren, there's anger spren, there's... That's a great question. Spren. Where do the spren They're come from? They're obviously created beings, right? They're not... They have to be. Right, they're they're in the realm with them. They're seen, so 
Interesting. Where do spren come from? The world may never know. Well. They do, but not at this point. We'll find out. Yeah. Speaking of spren, Syl is now attached to Kaladin. She's helping him find the wormweed. Wormweed. Yep, that's what the kids smoke these days. Wormweed. Well, what did you call it? Knobweed. You you know, huh? Knobweed. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, you got that wormweed? No, I got knobweed, which sounds worse. You're everything that's wrong with America. Immigrants coming in and taking our jobs. (laughs) But you're... You're going to have to cut that out. Your dark humor and your... Well, even Norm MacDonald, whose humor I try to emulate sometimes Mm. by telling you four-hour jokes. He's from Canada, so... Your anti-immigrant point stands, I suppose. <laughs> so Sill is helping. Forget that. Forget that. Forget I said anything. I, I retract my statement. Uh, Sill is helping Calden, right? He She's helping him find Knobweed, and she's seems to be looking out for him because when he's trying to sell the Knobweed, when he, after milking it, he tries to sell it to the apothecary person. Apothecary? You said <coughs> Lunamore Rock. Lun, that guy. Yeah, so he tries to sell it to him and he almost gets screwed. But because of, not directly because of Syl, but Syl picks up on it at least so that that shows that she's looking out for him. Yep, yep. He realizes that the Apocathery, all of them, there's more than one, are taking advantage of the army to some degree. Or at least in Cal's eyes. I would say they're making the best of their situation, and who cares? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. They probably could do it a little bit of a little better job of it, but they're in a predicament where they need to make money. They're charging what they're charging, so it is what it is. But the Apocathery almost screws Cal, but Cal comes out on top in this situation too. He's able to make a deal with him saying that he'll give him this knobweed juice, milk, whatever. Yep. For one half sky of mark. what he sells what he which is like two months salary or something. Yeah. Yeah, something around there. It's like yeah, more than a few weeks salary. Yep. So he's now I don't know if he's made friends with Gaz. <laughs> I would never We say wouldn't that. get he that. Yeah, made, I wouldn't go that far. No. Not not at all, actually. But uh he has Gaz on, on his <coughs> payroll to a degree, like he he's getting something from Gaz. He has motivated some of the men. He'll motivate more of them when they go down the chasm. And he's now accomplished another task. He's made an alliance, if you will, with this apocathery. So, you went to the last chapter. So we're going to go back a little bit. But, because it's not... You, I think the arcs work better, right? But, like, so he sells the knobweed oil, gets one sky mark, then they get chasm duty, and, or maybe it happens just before that. But they're down in chasm duty, and then we see the guys heckling Kaladin. But Kaladin has already united Teft and Rock to be his go-to guys, and they're going down there and collecting... Fallen soldiers' armor and spears and blah, 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 blah. And then what happens? Well, Kaladin sees a spear in the ground, and something overtakes him, and he begins to 
Well, what will be the word for it in our context? He runs a kata. Yeah, he runs Starts a kata. Starts spinning it around. Right, so doing... Um, oh, my goodness. What is the word? There's a word for it. Practice? It's not... Uh, it's Yeah, the word describes somebody practicing with a weapon. But what? So he begins to practice with Let's go with that. So he begins to practice with it, and he wins over or at least shuts the mouths of some of his detractors because everybody still thinks of him as just a slave who is pretending to be a deserter and just, you know, some guy who thinks that's better than them, that he's better than them. But it he proves to them that he's not just a slave or a deserter, but he fights like nobody they've ever seen. Right, and then and the, go for it. We even get a little flashback or a memory of him and his trainer, and his trainer even was surprised at Cal's ability. Tux. Yep, yep, yep. And then Kaladin uses the money that he got from the Skymark to go buy a cauldron. Yeah, and him and Rock make some stew for the soldiers. Soldiers, bridgemen. Bridgman, yep. But uh, he does that because he knows they don't have a whole lot of time. And you know what? It works. It does. It works. Yep. So, questions, assumptions at the moment? What do you got for us? No questions. No questions. We've been talking for an hour 20. So, no questions. Assumptions, I have a few. Let me get gather my notes. All right. So, Assumptions. All this will not go unnoticed. Gaz, being the skeevy skeeve that he is, might might forgo the the some of the spheres that he's getting from Cal or a sphere that he's getting from Cal, and it might not be Gaz, but everything that Calden is doing might will not go unnoticed. And I'm gonna make a positive assumption. I think. It will work out, or at least on the surface, it will seem like it will work out for Cal. I don't think he's going to be punished for this. Maybe. He might He might make it out of bridge four, but where he makes it. What makes it, you say that? The vibes. is the same the thing vibes. When, we, when we talked about. Okay. The vibes. The vibes. The vibes. The vibes. Like, I think he, I don't know, it's not going to be probably in the next couple of chapters, but my assumption is in this book like that we're reading in book one, he will make it out of bridge four. And that will seem like a victory. And he won't be necessarily punished, although maybe Gaz and some others will screw with him in, in the intermediary here. But he will get out of bridge four. That's, the, that's the, the, the prime point of the assumption. And although it will seem like a win, he's going to be in a more precarious place. That that that's the assumption I'm making. Interesting, because he's, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Oh, okay. He is making alliances, and he's helping the men, and he is causing commotion that will not be unnoticed by the leaders beyond Gas. Forget Gas. Gas sure, is irrelevant. Sure. He's a piece of but, garbage. I mean, he Kaladin even said himself. He's like, uh, Rock is like, you'll win them over in a couple weeks. And Kaladin's like, we don't have a couple weeks with Bridgman. We'll literally die tomorrow. Exactly. So that's driving Cal to do what he's doing. 
And that, that's it. We don't need to belabor the point any longer. He will be noticed by people above Gaz, and it'll turn for him, but because we already established the fact this is the beginning of the story, they're suffering ahead for Cal. Of course. Well, so Kaladin used to be part of the class that, well, he's a classist, not racist. That's what it is. Classist, um, he used to be second nod which was very, very high up for a Dark Eyes, his family. So, yeah, uh, it's a little hard to get back up to that when you've got uh, Shashglyph on your forehead dictating that you're dangerous. But who knows? I mean, something, some, clearly something will happen, uh, and maybe maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll die, and we'll go find out where Spread come from. I don't believe you. Uh, that's subter- subterfuge. I call subterfuge. Uh huh. Well, did, did not subterfuge. Um, what's that word? Not sleight of hand. I cannot speak English for the life of me. Well, Every we know time that. I'm trying to make an interesting point. Oh, okay. Like, what's so, that word? One word. I just need one word. I just li- I, I just re-listened it. to our first episode of Stormlight, and I asked you what are the most important words a man can say, and you said I don't know. You're setting me up for something, and I said, well, at the end of this episode, why don't you tell us? And we never went back to that. So I want to go back to that now. Okay. What are the most important words a man can say? That's the end of this episode. Go. I will do better. What? I will do better. You looked it up. I didn't look it up. I came across it. You cheated is what you did. I did not. You did cheat. Well, I told you that I read ahead for context. The most important words a man can say. If I must fall, I will rise each time a better man. Anyway. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of SideQuest, where Slava doesn't listen to me, and he robs himself of joy from discovering things in the, in the narrative. Tune in next week, where we discuss the fourth episode of The Way of Kings, and we look at chapter 28, interludes 4, 5, and 6, and all the way up through chapter 34. We're plugging along. Goodness, yes we are. And I promise, Jonathan, I will do better. And I'll believe you. Goodbye, good people.